0: with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I am a producer-executive at HowStuffWorks.com, and I love technology, and that's why I've been hosting the show for as long as I can remember. No, I seriously love tech, and recently, due to the hard work of Ramsey, the Wonder Producer, I was able to have a discussion with uh, some people up on the rooftop, click, 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 of the Pont City Market, where we have an ice rink now. Now, when I actually had this conversation, the ice rink had not been completely installed. Uh, there was a distinct lack of ice, for example. But it got me to thinking about doing a full episode about the technology that makes ice rinks possible in areas where it is not below freezing. I mean, obviously, you can have a natural ice rink if you happen to live someplace where it gets cold enough for a pond to freeze through thick enough where it's safe to do that. But as for indoor ice rinks like hockey rinks and ice skating rinks in general, uh, you would have to have a system there in order to make it work. So that's what I'm really going to explore today. Now, I'm not really familiar with this from a personal level, and that's because I live in Atlanta. I grew up essentially in the Atlanta area. I am a Southerner. We are not well known for our winter sports. Uh, we did once upon a time have a, an NHL hockey team called the Thrashers that got sold off to Winnipeg. But I'm not going to spend this entire episode grousing about how we don't have the Thrashers anymore. I could do that, but I won't. We do have a few temporary ice rinks, seasonal ice rinks that pop up during the winter, though. And I've never actually been on an ice rink. The closest experience I've had would be roller skating. And that's obviously similar, but not the exact same thing as ice skating. But I do know I'm terrible at roller skating. I mean, absolutely, hilariously not graceful on roller skates, so I'm pretty sure I'd wipe out instantaneously on an ice skating rink. But I did want to learn more about how those are created and how they're maintained, particularly in places like here in the South, where we have some of these outdoor ice skating rinks. And in case you weren't really familiar with this, our temperatures rarely dip below freezing, so it takes a lot of engineering to make sure that ice rink stays nice and icy. Uh, The tech to make an ice rink is pretty cool, pun intended, and a big component of it is essentially the same sort of tech that makes refrigerators or air conditioners work, only on a way bigger scale. But the same basic principles apply. So we're going to talk a lot about the refrigeration cycle, and we're going to talk a lot about heat exchangers. But first, let's get some basic physics under our belts. Now, we got to talk about thermal physics, as in the physics that are all about heat. And heat itself is a physical process. Heat is not something that is necessarily possessed. Heat is technically uh, the transfer of energy from something of a high temperature to something else of a lower temperature. That process, that exchange, is in fact heat. Uh, So a lot of this stuff I'm going to talk about, you probably heard plenty of times in basic science classes. But if you're like me, it may have been a very long time since you've had a physics class and you might need the refresher. And I always feel it's important to start simple and then you build from there. So first things first, heat always moves from an area of high temperature to an area of low temperature within a system. That's how you do not have heat move from low temperature to high temperature. That would be crazy. It only goes high to low That's just how our universe works. You cannot transfer the other way around. So any object that has a higher temperature than its surroundings within a system will gradually transfer heat to those surroundings and its own temperature, uh, assuming there's not something actually generating the heat within this object, will decrease until both the object itself and its surroundings will reach an equilibrium, that meaning They reach the same temperature. Similarly, if you have an object that has a lower temperature than its surrounding environment within a system, it will gradually warm up. Now, this is not to say that cold is leaking out or escaping. Cold does not transfer, only heat transfers. Heat from the environment moves into the object, object gradually increasing its temperature until, again, it reaches an equilibrium. Now, in the real world, we would typically call this room temperature because the systems we operate in on a day-to-day basis are these, you know, rooms and basic environments. So if you have a hot cup of tea and you leave it sitting on the counter for several minutes, it starts to cool because it's releasing that heat. That heat is transferring to its surrounding environment that is at a lower temperature than the hot cup of tea. Uh, likewise, if you have a nice frosty beverage... And you leave it on the counter, it will start to warm up. It'll start to absorb heat from its environment as it transfers in until, again, it reaches that equilibrium. From a macro level, we could say that uh, the heat is this flow of energy. So just keep that in mind. Generally speaking, if you want to make the base of an ice rink colder, technically this works for anything, but we're going to use ice rink specifically because that's what this episode is about. If you want to make the base of an ice rink colder, you have to expose it to something that has a lower temperature than the rink base. So here in Atlanta, it's in, I think, the low 60s right now in Fahrenheit, and we want to get the temperature of the base of that ice rink below the freezing temperature of water, which in Fahrenheit would be 32 degrees. It means that we have to expose that base of the ice rink to a temperature that's actually significantly lower than the freezing point for water in order to make this happen, then the rink base will transfer heat to that lower temperature object. In other words, whatever we're using to cool down the base, technically what's happening is that the base is actually transferring heat to that system, and thus it'll grow colder. Now, in principle, that's pretty simple, right? It's not a very complicated thought. You just have to get something that's colder than what you're working with, and move them within the same system. And then it will gradually make the other thing colder because it'll start to absorb the heat from that other thing. That's not that complicated. But then when you start actually looking at practical applications, you realize, all right, we've got to solve some pretty big problems. It requires a lot of engineering. So for one thing, if you want the ice rink to remain ice, even if the surrounding temperature is above the freezing point for water, for example, Atlanta, Georgia, and the winter tends to be that... You'll have to continuously chill the base of that ice rink. You can't just get it cold and leave it. You have to keep it cold. And since the base of the ice rink will continually transfer heat to that colder object, that colder object will eventually warm up. So whatever the system is that you're using to chill the base of the ice rink, it's absorbing heat. That means it is warming up. That means you have to have a, a continuous way to con- to keep that, that system more cool, to, to chill it to use a chiller, if you will. That's what they're called. Uh, so these are actually pretty complicated. Now, I keep saying colder object because not all ice rinks are equal. They're not all exactly the same. They use the same principle, but the actual application is different. So, for example, if you want a, a hockey rink, like a standard hockey rink, NHL hockey rink, you're talking about typically a a base that is a concrete base under which you have a network of steel pipes, and the steel pipes carry an extremely cold liquid, something that is below the freezing temperature of water. We'll get into that a little bit later, Uh, and that in turn pulls heat away from the concrete base, making it colder than the freezing point for water. You can then add water on top of the concrete base and start building up layers of ice. Others are a little bit different. The one that's up on the rooftop of our building actually has a series of uh, plastic tubes that are carrying an extremely cold liquid in them being pumped underneath the surface of the ice rink. And that's what allows the water to, to freeze, even in temperatures that are above the freezing point for water. And you essentially pour water on top of this or otherwise distribute water on top of it. It's a little more precise than just pouring And you get your ice rink. Uh, So generally speaking, same approach, just slightly different applications. Now, we have to create a system that will hold a temperature below the freezing point of water. Now, that presents itself with a few challenges. First, you have to figure out, all right, what substance are we going to use? Clearly, we can't just use plain old water. Because if we did, the water in our system to try and absorb heat that would freeze and then you wouldn't be able to move it through your pipe system. So you can't just use plain old water. You would need to have a liquid that has a lower freezing temperature than water does. So one way you could do that is by adding stuff to water in order to lower its freezing point. So salt is a good example. Salt water has a lower freezing point than fresh water. And that freezing point is dependent upon how much salt concentration there is within that water mixture. So some hockey rinks will use a briny mixture, meaning they've got some salt content in the water to lower that freezing temperature. Uh, If you have fresh water, that freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius. Seawater, which obviously is not the same thing as being used in hockey rink systems, uh, seawater freezes at 28.4 degrees Fahrenheit or minus two degrees Celsius. So seawater has a salinity, that's salt content, of about 3.5%. That is not as salty as water can get, though. You can keep adding salt into water up to the point that the salt makes up about 23.3% of the weight of the mixture. So at that point, you reach what's called saturation. You cannot put more salt into that mixture. It will never dissolve. So at 23.3%, you hit that maximum salinity. Now, at that concentration, salt water would have a freezing temperature of minus 21.1 degrees Celsius or minus 5.98 degrees Fahrenheit. So very different, right? You're talking about uh, a, a vast array of temperatures there. And again, it's all just based on the amount of salt in that water. So a lot of ice rinks, like I said, a lot of hockey rinks use a briny mixture as the cooling mechanism for the base of the rink. Now the ice itself that's on the, the rink, that's pure ice. That's just water. That doesn't have any salt content in it at all. The only thing that has the salt content is the system underneath the rink that is at a lower temperature in order to allow the ice to form. The one that's actually being, or one that's in use now on the rink, when we went up to talk, they were still putting this all together, doesn't use a briny mixture. Instead, it uses glycol, which is a type of alcohol. And glycol also has a lower freezing point than water. In fact, glycol will remain a liquid until you hit about negative 74 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about negative 59 degrees Celsius. So if you can cool glycol down well below water's freezing temperature, but still above the freezing temperature of glycol itself, you're in business. You can keep pumping liquid glycol that's at a very low temperature at the very base of your ice rink, and that will provide the heat sink to pull heat away from water and allow it to freeze. But this leads us to our second big problem to solve. How do you get the cooling liquid to that low temperature? How do you keep your glycol or your briny mixture at a temperature lower than the freezing point for water, if the water you are adding is constantly transferring its heat to the system, how do you then get rid of that heat? Because if you don't do that, your cooling pipes will gradually warm up, and then your ice rink will just become a very shallow swimming pool, and people will not have very much fun. That is where the chillers come in. Chillers are all about transferring heat so that you can siphon it away from one area and dump it in another area. You cannot destroy energy, but you can move it from one place to another. So you can't destroy heat, but you can pull it from one location and disperse it into a different location. Chillers do this by taking advantage of thermal physics. And there are several different types of chillers that use slightly different approaches, some of them dramatically different approaches. But they all have essentially the same end goal, which is to facilitate heat transfer. Uh, We're going to look at a general approach and talk about the types of chillers you're likely to run into if you were, I don't know, going to an ice rink or installing a massive HVAC system for an office building. So think of chillers as three loops that are adjacent to one another, but they don't connect to each other. So almost like three rubber bands that are very close together. Within one loop, you have the chilled liquid. That is, this is the stuff that is creating the heat sink, that's pulling the heat away from whatever it is that you want to cool down. This might be an air conditioning system, or it might be, again, the basis, the foundation for your ice rink. Uh, so you've got that. You've got the second loop. That takes the heat gathered from the first loop. So that first loop starts to heat up as it's absorbing this heat. You got to find a way to remove that. You got to find a way to dump that heat someplace. There's a second loop that it essentially does that. It takes the heat from the first loop and then finds a convenient spot to dump it. And then you have a third loop that is your refrigerant. That kind of acts as the facilitator between loops one and two. In fact, it's the most important component of the entire system is your refrigerant uh, loop. Now, there are four different pieces to the chiller system within that refrigerant loop that make all of this possible. You have a compressor, you have a condenser, you have an expansion valve, and you have an evaporator. And this leads us to another element of thermal physics, which is if you crank up pressure on a gas, for example, you not just increase the pressure of that substance, you also increase its temperature. And it also means that you can push up the boiling point uh, of a substance by putting it under pressure, which is also a great song with Freddie Mercury and David Bowie. So if you take a gas and you pressurize it enough, you can convert that gas into a liquid even if the temperature of the substance is above its normal boiling point at regular air pressure. Uh, so it will end up condensing into a liquid, whereas it would normally evaporate into a gas under that t- under uh, normal pressures, as long as you're cranking up the actual pressure of the gas. So here's how I think about it. On a molecular level, it's really easy to understand the behavior of solids, liquids, and gases. A solid substance has its molecules pretty much locked into place. I mean, there's always some little movement, but it's more or less locked into place, They hold their positions relative to each other. That keeps a solid, consistent. But a liquid has molecules that can move around more freely. They spread out a bit. They get to wander around. They test their boundaries because a liquid always is going to take the shape of whatever container it is in. Then a gas goes even further with molecules spreading out even more. But if you do put that gas under pressure, you're effectively forcing those molecules closer together as if they were in a liquid. So if you do that enough... The gas condenses into a liquid. You push those molecules together enough to convert it into its liquid form. So how does a chiller take advantage of this? All right. This is going to be a little tricky to describe without the use of visual aids, but I'm going to do my best. So let's just imagine the system as simple as we possibly can. Imagine a rectangle and it's wider than it is tall. So you've got a wide rectangle. Now on the center part of the base of the rectangle, that bottom uh, border of the rectangle, just Imagine a circle right in the center of that. That circle is going to represent our compressor. Now, at the top of the rectangle, opposite of our compressor, we'll draw a little triangle, and that triangle is going to represent the expansion valve. So you can think of these as two gates. They keep the pressure different on either side of the gates. On the right side of this rectangle, we're going to imagine that's the condenser, and on the left side we're going to imagine that that is the evaporator. So refrigerant moves from the evaporator side through the condenser side via the compressor. So you have the refrigerant moving from evaporator into compressor where it gets compressed, thus the name, and then pushed over to the condenser side. So we're going to take a journey with the refrigerant to understand how this works from a technical perspective. From the evaporator side, just as you get to the compressor, That refrigerant, before it goes through the compressor, is a low-pressure warm gas, typically. The compressor then compresses this gas so that the output on the other side, on the condenser side, is a high-pressure hot gas. Uh, This hot gas then moves through the condenser, and that's typically a long length of pipe or tubing That folds back and forth on itself. If you've ever looked in the back of a refrigerator or in an air conditioning unit, you've probably seen this, where you've seen these these pipes that do these tight S-curves over and over and over again. Well, that's the way it's laid out in a condenser. The high temperature, high pressure gas moves through this length of pipe, and it can start to transfer some of that heat. Some of it gets transferred straight through the pipe. Some of it typically gets transferred through fins that are uh, connected to the pipes, so that it can draw heat away through uh, conductivity. It's con- it's conducting the heat, uh, and you'd then have um, a-, a fan typically that blows air across the system that uses convection to pull heat away as well. So this gas starts to lose some of that temperature as it's moving through this series of S-curves. It's transferring heat to the air around it. Now, the higher pressure means that as this happens, the gas begins to condense into a liquid as it makes its journey through this part of the loop. The liquid is still under a lot of pressure, though you can't really pressurize liquid the way you can with gases. But It's still under a great deal of push. You could think of it in that sense, Um, but it's it's reaching more of a regular temperature. At the end of the condenser side, you have that expansion valve, which leads to the evaporator side. Now, the reason it's a valve is so that it can again create this partial seal. It's sealed whenever it's shut. You have a low pressure side on the other on the evaporator end of this loop, the circuit, if you think of it that way. So you have high pressure on the condenser side, low pressure on the evaporator side. That expansion valve allows for one-way travel. So it goes from condenser to evaporator. And pressure, like temperature, is all about moving from areas of high concentration to low concentration. So the expansion valve allows this pressurized substance, this refrigerant, to pass through into that low-pressure side, the evaporator side. And when it does, it suddenly finds itself with a lot more room to spread out than on the high-pressure side, right? Suddenly it doesn't have that high pressure to cram it together. And so the molecules of the refrigerant end up spreading out, and as a result, the temperature begins to drop. So at the beginning of the refrigerant journey around the evaporator, it becomes a low-pressure, cold liquid. And as it moves through the evaporator, it starts to absorb heat from the system, whatever it is you're trying to cool. In this case, it would be the... The stuff that's running underneath the rink, whether it's the brine or whether it's glycol, that would be tangential to this refrigerant system, and the refrigerant would be absorbing the heat from there. And as a result, the refrigerant starts to boil off. It starts to evaporate, thus the name evaporator. In air conditioning systems, this heat would be from the air of whatever area you were trying to cool. But in the case of the ice rink on the roof of our building, the heat is in that glycol that's running through the tubes that are under the rink itself. The refrigerant boils as it moves through this part of the loop and evaporates, and that turns into the low-pressure warm gas that we started off with when I began talking about this refrigerant in the first place. That low-pressure warm gas that immediately moves through the compressor and becomes the high-pressure, high-temperature gas. So we're back at the beginning. And we just keep going through. It's a closed system, so it doesn't go anywhere else. The refrigerant does not mix with any of the other loops. It just continuously goes through this process. Now, the glycol again acts as that separate loop, comes into close contact with the refrigerant, but it never actually shares a common line with it. So you never mix them together. The glycol will transfer heat over to the refrigerant. And because it's transferring heat, the glycol itself becomes colder as a result or if you prefer, the temperature decreases due to this heat transfer. The glycol then moves through its own pump to travel underneath the rink uh, through lots of tubes. I mean, there were hundreds of these tubes underneath the rink, and it absorbs the heat from the environment as it moves through until it gets back to the heat exchanger part of the loop, and then again, transfers heat to the refrigerant and goes all the way through it again. So again, closed loop systems. It's just pumps moving liquid through at this point. Typically you then would have a third loop and this is the one that picks up all the heat that was pushed out from the condenser side of that refrigerant when it was that high pressure high temperature gas. So there's some that are air cooled but a lot of them end up being water cooled so you have this water loop again on that side of it. You can use water in this particular system because you're not you're dealing with temperatures that are well above the freezing point of water. Uh, You just have to make sure that the water is at a lower temperature than the gas going through the condenser, because again, heat's going to only move from high temperature to low temperature. So if the water you're using is high temperature and the condenser is at a high temperature, it's not very efficient. You need the water to be cool enough to actually pull heat away, or rather to accept heat that's being rejected from the condenser. This water would then typically be pumped up to some sort of cooling mechanism, like a cooling tower. And these are the big things you see on top of buildings that often emit enormous amounts of steam on cold days. If you've ever seen that, that's typically a cooling tower on the top of a building. That's part of the HVAC system. The hot water will go into the cooling tower. It drips down over fins that are inside the cooling tower. Uh, you typically have a fan or maybe a couple of fans at the top of the cooling tower that is drawing air into the tower. There are vents along the side that pull air in. The air moves over these fins that have the hot water on them, thus cooling the water, some of it evaporating away, and then ejecting out the top of the cooling tower, being pushed out through that fan. So it's kind of like a vacuum cleaner, but instead of sucking up dirt, it's sucking up heat and air from the water, or heat from the water, but air in general, and blowing it up through the top. The cooling water ends up dripping down these fins, typically collects at a basin at the at the base of the cooling tower and then drains back down into the system uh, and then back down to the heat exchanger part of the chiller that I was just talking about. So that's your basic parts of a chiller. And again, it's the same principle that's working with things like refrigerators. that's working with air conditioners and also ice skating rinks. Now, I've got a lot more to say about the technology behind ice skating rinks and maintaining them. But before I do any more of that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so we've talked about how to get the temperature down low enough to freeze water and keep it at a temperature where you still have solid water, a.k.a. ice. But how do you fill up the ice rink? The answer is that you do it very carefully or if you prefer, meticulously and slowly. So a large permanent ice rink typically will have that concrete foundation, and underneath that you have a network of pipes that carry the cooled liquid that keep the concrete foundation nice and chilly. The concrete will be at a temperature that is below the freezing point of water. Uh, you fill up the rink by spraying it with a fine mist of water onto the concrete layer to start off with. Uh, the temperature of the concrete so low that those tiny water droplets pretty much freeze as they make contact with the concrete. It doesn't take long at all for it to freeze to the the surface. The first couple of layers of ice are always extremely thin. So for a typical hockey rink that uses this concrete approach, you're talking about 1 30th of an inch thick, which is about 0.85 millimeters. And once those layers are down, you paint it. So most ice rinks will lay down a layer of paint on those first couple of layers of ice. This helps do a few things. For one, it hides the base of the ice rink away, so you're not looking at clear ice and seeing a concrete floor. Or in the case of the ice rink that's on the roof of our building, you wouldn't see a series of tubes that are pink, because glycol has a, uh, the glycol they're using has a pink tint to it. So you would otherwise see just lines and lines and lines of pink tubes. So they paint the ice so that it obscures that. It also will allow for good contrast with any logos or words that you want to paint on the ice rink. So, for example, with hockey rinks, you would typically paint the name of the hockey team on there, maybe put their logo on, maybe a sponsor logo could go on there. Uh, But you want there to be good contrast, so that's why you have that white... Base also, it creates great contrast for the puck in hockey, because you want to be able to see that if you're a player. Or, or an observer, really. So after that layer of paint would come another layer of ice. This one is a little more thick. It is one sixteenth of an inch thick. That's about 1.6 millimeters. And that acts like a sealer for that layer of paint that was just laid down. And then you could put more paint down on top of this layer. So this is where you would paint logos or the lines and circles and arcane symbols that make up the rules of hockey that I never got a chance to understand because Atlanta's team was taken from us before I could ever get a full grasp on the rules. And yeah, I know I said I wouldn't talk about it, but I'm still angry about it. Anyway, After that, you would add your final layer of ice on top, but this actually would happen in several stages. So it's one solid layer, but it's done in phases. Uh, This is the actual surface that people would skate upon. Now, a typical hockey rink, which again is much larger than the one that we have upstairs, would require between 12,000 and 15,000 gallons of water. That's 45,000 to 57,000 liters. Most of that water gets added in that final layer. The overwhelming majority of the water is added in that last layer. And whereas the early layers get added as a fine mist, the final one is a bit less delicate. They typically will just use a flooding hose to pour water out on top of the rink. And we're talking about 10,000 gallons of water at a rate of about 500 to 600 gallons per hour which means it can take about 20 hours or so to add that final layer to the rink. And according to Don McMillan, whom Health Stuff Works interviewed for an article on how ice rinks work, most rinks will allow each 500 or 600 gallon amount in that hour to freeze completely before they start adding more water. So again, in phases, and that helps maintain a really good quality of ice. And ice quality is really a thing. You can have good ice and you can have bad ice. If your temperature isn't right, you're going to have some issues. So. For example, um, outside, if you don't have the right temperature, it's going to start melting. You'll have some slushy ice at the top and that's not great for skating. Um, if you have really high humidity, you're going to end up with a lot of fog over the ice, which happens here because we have a lot of humidity in Atlanta. And, uh, it's pretty spooky looking in the morning to walk up to Pont City Market and see the, the, the mist pouring off the top of the building. Professional ice skaters tend to like their ice at a relatively warm 26 to 28 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface. That's minus 3.33 to minus 2.22 degrees Celsius. Hockey players like it a little colder because the ice is harder. It's more resilient, doesn't grip the ice skates quite like the softer, less cold ice does. They prefer the surface to be closer to 24 to 26 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 4.44 to minus 3.33 degrees Celsius. Now, I had a chance to chat with the project manager for the ice rink installed on the roof of our building, and we cover some of the stuff I just mentioned, but I think it's a pretty interesting discussion, including all the work that was required to install an ice rink on the roof of a nine-story building in Atlanta, Georgia, and just the amount of sheer effort it required to do that. So here's what he had to say. Oh, and just so you guys know, we were talking up on the roof on a windy day, so it was also during while... You know, construction. They were still putting the ice ring together, so the audio quality is a bit atmospheric. But here he goes.
1: So basically, you have got to have a uh, a level surface. Obviously, if you're going to make ice and spray water, you can have it running downhill. So we were fortunate enough to already have a uh, basically a perfectly leveled deck up here. So then we put in foam insulation over that deck, uh, and then a visqueen a plastic. And then we put these mats together, and each of these tubes is a circulating system that will run the glycol, pump pressurized, probably minus 10, 20 degree glycol through. And as the glycol is running through it and freezing, you basically take uh, your standard garden hose and start misting water. And as soon as the water hits that, minus 20 degree glycol tubing it starts to freeze and so you start building that that base of ice and they'll basically take it from uh from below the the glycol tubing that you see here to about a half inch above it and then they'll paint it white so that you don't see everything, all this uh, pink glycol underneath. So then they'll put, after they've got that base coat of uh, white paint on it, then they'll put another layer of clear ice on it so it looks just like any other ice skating rink in America or hockey rink that you would see on TV. And if we wanted to, you could paint lines or we could have a sponsor. We could have a how, how stuff works out there and the you know, logo in the middle and everybody skating would be skating over it. And that's pretty much, the, that's the, you know, that's the, the end of the process, and it's pretty simple. Right. Uh, it's what happens prior to that, where all the engineering comes into play, and, uh, and all the hard work happens. So in order for us to create this on the roof, uh, a lot had to happen. We had a 120-ton chiller that we had to crane to the roof. And, uh, so that was, uh, we had a 300 foot crane basically that we hooked that up to, but before we did that, you just can't set 7,500 pounds plus another 3000 pounds of glycol on a roof. It has to be engineered. So we did structural engineering analysis and then built a platform that would handle the weight, the distribution, because not only is it weight, you also need a uh, little shock absorbers in there to handle any of the vibrations because once you tie into the uh, the columns and the beams, you don't want the neighbors below hearing or feeling any, any vibration and rattling. So we isolated that system, craned up the chiller, and, uh, and at that point we're running a six inch steel pipe from the chiller uh, up to the rink here. And it's a closed system, so it's just a massive circulation of glycol. Uh, Because we had to locate our chiller um, further than about 20 feet from the rink, uh, we had to put a a massive pump on it too. So the chillers themselves have a, a limited pressure capability for runs. But our run was so long, we, we put a huge pump on it so that we get the uh, the constant pressure that we need, sure. and um, and that we maintain our ability to keep this thing frozen. Uh, we're lucky that we're under a tent. If we were outside in Atlanta, you know, we, we don't have a lot of days of uh, constantly below freezing here. Right. And in the sunshine, it would probably melt the ice. Some of the some of the other outdoor rinks struggle with that. Um, We will not have any issues, I'm told by the experts, uh, without direct sunlight on our rink that we should have a great surface. Uh, We could probably do it all year round, believe it or not. Um, I know that this company uh, does things worldwide and they have outdoor, outdoor skating in San Diego. So And they they'd run that in the summertime there. So you just have to have a, you know, it's all about uh, your how big your chiller is and how big your rink is in order to, uh, to make that happen. And then all the 6-inch piping, of course, had to be highly insulated. Uh, you don't want to lose any of your value, your temperature values. You know, steel obviously would, would bleed out and into the... ambient air temperature so we've got uh, about uh, two inches of insulation uh, around all the piping. Uh, From an electrical standpoint uh, we're uh, 480 volts three phase uh, so lots of lots of juice to run all this. Uh, as you're probably aware, you know the, the bigger equipment, anything that involves heating and cooling, it's going to pull a lot of amps and it's going to need a lot of a lot of voltage. So we uh, we actually ran additional power up here on the roof uh, in order to make that happen. Can't just uh, plug it into the outlet on the wall, right? Regrettably, because uh, running power from the west side of the building to over here. It's, uh, it's it's pricey uh, at at uh, thirty bucks a foot just for the wow. just for the wire just for the cable. So yeah, the power was uh, was a disappointment. But my landlord's been very helpful <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with helping us out on some of that.
0: So basically what we're looking at here for for people who may not be aware of how this all works, we're looking at essentially a heat exchanger. You've got your glycol, which has a lower freezing point than water, so you can lower that temperature of the glycol much lower than the freezing point of water. You run that through the system, water hits it, uh, obviously the heat transfers into the glycol system which is so cold and so massive and being pumped so quickly that it's not effectively raising the temperature of glycol enough for it to affect uh it's not like you're going to have one part of the rink that's slushy whereas the rest of it's all all nice and solid it goes pumps through the system hits the chiller reduces the temperature of the glycol back down to what you wanted at the top goes right back in because it's a closed loop and just continuously pumps through to keep that water at that, that below freezing temperature so that you have a nice solid ring. Is that more or less what we're looking at here?
1: That's exactly what we're looking at here. And,
0: and in fact, the,
1: uh, the chiller has got it, uh, sensors on it, and it will monitor the pressure, and it will also monitor the temperature. So it's kind of a smart system in order to be efficient to tell itself exactly what it needs to do to, to maintain the conditions that we're looking that you just described out here.
0: Well, that's great because this is exactly the same sort of principle that you would see on things like air conditioners or uh, a refrigerator, just on a much more massive scale and at temperatures far lower than what you would. I mean, I like a nice, cool man cave, but minus 20 is is low even for me. Yeah,
1: you know, it's not something you want to uh, walk around barefoot on uh, you know, <laughs> in, in the garage or in your cave. Right. Absolutely.
0: So that's great. About how long uh, would it take to go from, from dry to full rake? Uh, knowing that this is going through phases,
1: right? Once once we're at this point where the system is set up, the grid is laid down, and once we flip that compressor on, within an hour we're going to start making ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as we reach the, the right temps that are circulating through the system, we're going to start spraying down that that first coat of uh, of water in order to uh, to build up that ice. So it should happen very quickly. Uh, you know, we probably will. It'll take hours, of course, to build up inches. We'll probably get to about three inches of ice out here uh, that may take some time but again uh because we're not in direct sunlight, uh, we're gonna, and, and it is cool at night, so if we start this in the afternoon and work into the evening, uh, we should have a, a solid rink uh, within a matter of four or five hours up here to skate on.
0: That's incredible. And what are the, do you happen to know the dimensions of this rink?
1: Yes, this rink is 50 by 70, so we're at right at 3,500 square feet here.
0: So just five hours or less for that much that much square footage is really impressive when you sit there, and you think about the energy requirements as you were saying just for the the equipment is incredible but if we're talking about just physics the energy requirements to remove that much heat so that you can convert water into ice for that much square footage it's uh it's phenomenal and it's an elegant solution too i'm sad that my listeners won't be able to see this we'll we'll share some images on social as well to kind of get a look at how this works. But when you see it and you see the solution that was proposed from an engineering perspective, uh, it is simple and elegant and yet incredibly effective to be able to turn that much water into that much ice that quickly. Uh, Again, when you start looking at it from a physics perspective, you're like, that's a lot of energy that uh, you, you have to take into consideration and of course that's before anyone tries to manage a, a triple axle out here. Um, I will not be one of those people. I might try my hand at skating but considering my lack of grace just on roller skates I suspect Spectacular white belts would be to follow. So,
1: well, when they when that ice is finished and ready to skate on, uh, you're going to hear me tap out at the (laughs) at the sides and turn it over to another group of people to handle it from there on out. You know, to your point, the the amount of energy and and everything that goes into this, you know, the uh, I think only Mother Nature really uh, does it better than than what we're doing here. And uh, it is it is uh, when you start to think about the the energy and the physics involved, it is. it's daunting, really.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. As you were pointing out, just the just taking into consideration how to handle the weight is an enormous undertaking because you're on we're on the rooftop of an existing structure. Obviously, uh, one the rooftop was not necessarily intended to hold a 120 ton chiller plus a, a rink full of solid water. Uh, not to mention all the people on top of it. But that's incidental compared to everything else. Uh, so, yeah, having to take that into consideration and look at how is the building uh, built, how does that weight distribute already, what would you need to do in order to uh, offset that in any way if there's a point where you think, well, we'd love to put it here, but the roof literally can't support it there. Uh, there's a lot of things you have to take into account, and I imagine the whole process took quite some time before anything was laid down at all. We, we really
1: uh, started visioning this over a year ago and started to kind of uh, analyze the the hurdles that we would have in front of us and uh, structural engineering of course it was our first consideration can we handle the pounds per square foot up here what's the rating of this ice going to be and uh, how well is our deck engineered and and so we had to bring in you know the the brainiacs to help us out and figure out exactly uh, what we could handle up here because it's not just ice we have wind load up here and then we're going to have a, a, a human load as well so so if you really start to factor in all of that and the uh, the math kicks in and we were fortunate that we had very robust engineering up here and that we were able to uh, to, to pull this off but uh, yeah at, almost at every turn of the project we were we were surprised by the uh, complexity of it and surprised because um this was a little bit out of our wheelhouse. This was a new venture for us, and so the learning curve was steep.
0: Well, to me, those are the most exciting projects to work on. Uh, I, I've i always said that my job is one of the best I can imagine because I get to learn new things every single week, and that, you know, that challenge is what I feed off of. At times, it can obviously become so challenging as to be frustrating, but uh, the fact that we're looking at a project that's so close to being... Uh, ready for the public to see. Uh, I'm very excited to actually get a look at the rink once it's all finished. Being able to see it in this state is actually really cool for me because it's something that I typically would never have been able to see, you know, outside of just images or maybe some videos. So having this opportunity is fantastic. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see this chiller I've heard so much about.
1: Well, it was, it, it was a beast, and, and to see it come off of a, a, a huge flatbed truck and have the crane, and, of course, you just don't uh, latch on to it. You can imagine a, you know, even a five mile an hour breeze as you're craning something hundreds of feet into the air can get a little bit dicey. So they uh, just just watching the crane set up its booms and its its weight distribution that was a whole another engineering lesson in itself. Uh, uh, again, the the, the the physics involved in every phase of this was really amazing, and and yeah, it, it was it was an enormous amount of fun for me to be a part of this to go through the learning curve, and uh, I, I can now speak in, a, in some languages of physics that I, I couldn't have before we started the project.
0: And you never know when that's going to come in handy on a future project, so that's also great. Well, uh, thank you so much for showing the rink. I really appreciate it. I'm, I really can't wait to see this it's way to go.
1: Well, it's a pleasure having you up here, and uh, I think we'll force you to get into a pair of skates and get on the ice when we're done. I,
0: I think I have to at this point. <laughs> I want to thank Mr. Brett Holride for inviting us up and taking a look at the ice rink in progress. It was pretty awesome, not just to see the rink itself and how it was laid out and with all those tubes of glycol underneath, but also just that massive chiller, 120-ton chiller on the roof of this building. It was enormous, along with the huge pump that was necessary to actually move the glycol through the system. And we never would have had a chance without it. So thank you again, Brett. And uh, I got a little bit more to say about maintaining an ice rink. But before I go into that last section, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, I thought it might be fun to end this episode with a look at ice resurfacers. Uh, Typically, folks would refer to these as a Zamboni. But just to be clear, Zamboni refers to a particular brand of ice resurfacing machines. It's just that most folks use that brand name to refer to the technology in general, much the same way that some people will refer to any copy machine as a Xerox. Now, the purpose of these machines is to repair and polish the surface of ice rinks as they experience wear and tear. And it does not take very long for metal ice skates to carve up that nice, pristine surface of an ice rink. And once in a while, you need to fix things so that they're more attractive and to avoid situations where a skater goes topsy-turvy after hitting a particularly big divot cut out of the surface. Now, in the good old days, and by that I mean the awful old days, this was all done by hand. People would actually venture out onto the skating surface with tools to physically chip away at that top layer in order to get as smooth a surface as possible. They would use shovels to shovel up any of the ice shavings that they created either from skating or just scraping that top layer of ice. And they would use water hoses to pour out more water to replace the ice lost from the whole process as well. And they'd use squeegees and towels to help spread the water in a thin layer across the entire surface to get that nice, shiny appearance and make everything clean and beautiful again, and the whole process would take several hours of back-breaking work. Then in 1940, you have a visionary named Frank Zamboni who decided to tackle this problem and find a better way to resurface an ice rink. He and his brother Lawrence had opened up an ice rink in California, Southern California at that, and they had been using a tractor that was outfitted with a large blade to scrape that top layer before manually shoveling up all the ice shavings and pouring hot water from a hose onto the rink and then squeegeeing it by hand across the surface. The whole process, even with the tractor, meant that it would take about an hour and a half to resurface their ice rink, which was oh, not an enormous rink. It was a it was a decent sized one, it was bigger than the one that we have upstairs. But not the biggest one in the world. And so Zamboni thought there's got to be a better way to do this. His solution was to create a new type of vehicle that could do as much of this work as possible all by itself. And he worked on this concept for nearly a decade and created a truly terrifying Frankenstein's monster of a vehicle out of parts that included stuff like there was a cylinder from a plane. There was a Jeep engine driving the whole thing. There was an oil derrick chassis. So this invention first debuted in 1949. It obviously went through lots of different uh, evolutionary processes until it was refined into the sleek, sexy vehicle we all know and love today. And of course, there's more than just Zamboni ice resurfacing machines out there at this time. There's all sorts of ones that are out there. But here's what a modern ice resurfacing vehicle actually does. So underneath the vehicle, there is a blade that is positioned uh, inside an overall structure that's called the conditioner. This you can actually raise and lower underneath the Zamboni. So when you're just driving it onto the surface of the ice, you can raise it up so nothing is dragging. And when you're ready to start, you lower the conditioner down, and then you typically have a control that can put the angle of attack for the blade at such so that you can Cut exactly the amount of ice you want off the top surface. For hockey rinks, it's a very, very thin layer. Uh, But other rinks, it might be a little bit more, uh, more severe, depending upon what they're trying to do. So the blade is typically somewhere between 77 to 96 inches in width, which is about 196 to 244 centimeters. And it cuts that top layer of the ice, the very top layer, removes any protrusions, helps level out any big divots. Uh there are a pair of augers that catch all the shavings, the the ice chips or the snow and they move it into a snow tank. Augers are are essentially large screws. So they use rotational force to move those shavings around. There's one that's horizontal and it ends up pulling all the ice shavings or really pushing all the ice shavings into the center back portion of the Zamboni. Then there's a vertical auger that lifts from that central packed mass and moves it up to the snow tank this waste tank that's typically on the front of the Zamboni or ice resurfacer I should say and then typically one of these machines will pour hot water onto the ice uh, behind this there's maybe it's warm not hot water and it helps level out anything that the blade wasn't able to get there's a squeegee that is right behind this hot water that then allows that to get sucked back up into the system so that it can be recycled. And then there's another hot water emitter at the very back of the Zamboni, just before you get to the the extreme rear of the vehicle where there's a flap, it's essentially a towel at the very back. And so hot water drips out and the towel then spreads the hot water against the surface of the ice. Ice resurfacers use hot water instead of cold water because the hot water, when it makes contact with the ice rink, will start to melt that surface ice just slightly before it begins to refreeze into a solid layer. If you were to use cold water, cold water freezes so quickly that you end up more like very thin additional layers on top, and those chip away very easily. So if you're doing some sort of fancy ice skating or you're doing, you know, playing hockey or something, you end up getting these big chips that fly up. And that typically is not really preferred. So that's why they use hot water. It, it melts the top surface of the ice just a little bit before it all refreezes and makes it more of a solid layer of ice. Often, um, you'll have a couple of other elements, like there might be another brush. It depends upon the vehicle. Some of them run on natural gas. Some of them run on battery power. Um... If you're looking at a full-size Zamboni with a full tank, these things are heavy. They weigh about 11,000 pounds or 4,990 kilograms. These are massive, heavy vehicles. So uh, running across that ice is no joke. And they also tend to have uh, metal studs on their tires to give them enough purchase to be able to actually move across the ice effectively. And according to Car and Driver... Operating a Zamboni isn't exactly like driving a sports car. The report said, quote, visibility from the elevated left rear position is poor. The abrupt throttle tip in takes some getting used to. And the vague steering is totally 70s Cadillac, end quote. But I'd still kind of like to ride on one, though. And that's our show about ice rinks. I'm still not likely to get on one anytime soon, unless I just decide that a few nice weeks in traction would be a really good vacation. But like many Southerners, uh, I really only trust ice if it's in my tea. That wraps up this episode. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a particular technology a company that's been important in tech or a figure that's really important in tech, or maybe there's someone you would love me to interview or have on as a guest host, any of those suggestions, I welcome them all. You can write me, the email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, you can watch me record this show live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. I record on Wednesdays and Fridays. Just go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. You'll see the schedule there. You can join in. You can join the chat room. I chat with you guys. We make jokes. We laugh. We cry. There's a lot of bonding that happens, but you won't be a part of it unless you go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. And I'll talk to you guys again really soon.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.